Shall we pray together? Father, this is the moment of truth when you speak to us. And Father, we thank you for your word. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its historics are true, and its decisions are changeless. Father, would you speak to us through your word, and may your Son be glorified in all the earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In 1923, J. Gratian Manchin wrote, he was a professor at Princeton University in 1923, and he wrote the book called Christianity and Liberalism. The book was a response to the rise of liberalism among mainline denominational churches. In short, Manchin argued that the liberal understanding of Christianity was in fact not just a variant version of our faith, nor did it represent simply a different denominational perspective, but it was an entirely different religion altogether, thus it was not Christianity. And so, to put simply, liberal Christianity, or what is titled today, emerging and or progressive Christianity is not Christianity at all. Progressive Christianity is a moralistic, therapeutic version of the faith that values questions over answers and being good over being right with God. And what we have today is just a shiny version of a recapitulation of what Manchin dealt with in 1923. It's just a tired old system that has been rehashed over and over and over again and the goal of it, of course, with the enemy, is for us to worship the creature more than the creator. So, why am I beginning this sermon this way? And some of you are wondering about that. Well, one central tenet of the eight components of progressive Christianity that you can read about on the website, all you have to do is pull up progressive Christianity, one central teaching is that they affirm that Jesus provides for us one of many ways to experience the sacredness and oneness of life, and that we can draw from diverse sources of wisdom, from all sources, on our spiritual journey. Y'all know what that means? It means that Jesus, to them, is not the only way to heaven. And that's what progressive writers and teachers are putting out for us today. Preachers that some of you may even listen to, and you have no idea what they believe. Books you read, you have no idea what these people believe. And you need to be discerning, folks. And I want to remind you this morning, in Hebrews 13, 7, the Bible says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. That's my position as your pastor. I'm looking out for your soul this morning, and I'm telling you that I'm going to give an account one day for how I led you. I'm trying to protect you. Listen to me clearly. There's only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ the Lord. Period. There are no alternatives. There are no other ways, no other means. So I'm encouraging you to understand and listen clearly. If you don't, it will be to your own peril. There's only one way to the Father, and that's through the Son. And what's so awesome about that is we've been studying it, have we not? Conversion after conversion after conversion, and it's not how-tos. It's the fact that we are absolutely simple to the core, and only Jesus Christ can save us. That's what the Bible teaches us. Michael Walrond announced to his 10,000-member church in New York City just a few months ago, here's what he said, the belief that anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus is going to hell is insanity. 
He said, there was a time when you would see people in the pulpit say, well, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to hell. He goes on to say, that's insanity. Many ways, in many ways, because that is not even what Jesus taught in the Bible. And here's what one wise preacher said in response. The preacher on this video is both right and wrong. He is right in that all roads lead to God. But this God is both love and a consuming fire. And if you meet him on the Christ road of his love, you will live. For the Bible says, he that has the Son has life. But any other road, be it religion or philosophy or a miscalculation of the person and work of Jesus Christ, the lake of fire is waiting. Praise God for men who will tell the truth. So here we have Lydia, and the Bible says that the God of eternity opened her heart to give her understanding. And thus we have the beginning of a church in Philippi. It's, it's a man beckoning Paul to come to Macedonia and preach, but isn't it awesome that God saves first a woman? And there's this missionary band that is added to. So who do we have? We have Paul. Now think about this. He's a full Jew, but he's a Roman citizen, Hebrew of Hebrews. We have Luke, that is now part of the mission, and he joined them. That's why you have the, the plural form uh, of we. You have we, meaning more people, and Luke puts himself in that band. And you have Timothy, remember him? And you have Silas. And then for the most part, you have a group of women that have come to faith in Jesus Christ, and they're following in this band. And listen to what the Bible says. As we were going to the place of prayer, I'm in Acts 16, verse 16. I suspected you'd know where that is, right? From our last sermon, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Notice they're going again to their place of prayer. And the missionary band is larger. And along the riverside, where she was converted, is probably where they are going to meet. And the Greek is very vivid in this particular place. And it says that she has a spirit of a python. Now, was that a snake? Well... In many ways, yes. It's the serpent, right? In the garden. But the fact is, that's what's in her. Uh, the word, again, the python spirit cries out day after day after day as the companions are on their way to church, right? They're on their way to worship, and this spirit is crying out day after day after day. A true statement. This is a servant of the Most High God who is telling you the way of salvation. And so it's taking place. I think at this point we need to explain the spirit of divination or, or a python spirit. In the NIV it says that the spirit by which she predicts the future. So whatever's in this woman is giving her the ability to predict the future. It's a spirit of a python or a python spirit. And there was a notion during this time frame that if you were indwelt with a spirit of a python or a python spirit then you were able to receive oracles concerning the future. So this woman of the occult was making money for her owners. And boy, they liked it. They were cashing in because she was foretelling the future. And so they were cashing in, making money. 
she, in our vernacular, would be a fortune teller or a spiritus, would be the word. She was demon-possessed. You know, the Bible tells us that this was a girl. It probably means she was a teenage girl. And her owners were making a ton of money. And the Bible says that she brought them money. She brought them wealth. So the Bible at this point is very clear regarding mediums and spirits and fortune telling and channeling. It's forbidden in the word of God in Jeremiah and most explicitly in Deuteronomy chapter 18, 9 through 15. It tells us clearly to not succumb to fortune telling or horoscopes. You Baptist? The reason that is forbidden is simply because, not only because people can take advantage of you, which we know that's the place, and that's true. Many of the fortune telling you see in this world is fraudulent. There's no question about that. The Bible would also remind us that some of it is real. And it's real because of demonic spirits. Folks, you need to be discerning. When the Bible says this python spirit is telling you that she was demon-possessed. And that stuff is absolutely real. She was making her owners a fortune because just as in our day, people are willing to pay a fortune to find out what might happen in the future. I got news for you. Why don't you just trust God with your tomorrows? Right? Why does God explicitly say, don't do this? Because you rob our God of His love and mercy and trust. And you think that through self-advancement or therapeutic ways that you can fix your tomorrow. Let me tell you something. If you're a believer, God holds your tomorrows. God plans your tomorrows. And so it's an offense to God for us to go to any other channel or medium to figure out what's going on in the future. So therefore God forbids it. To trust God with all your heart means that you trust God with your tomorrows. Well, So the, the people in Philippi are willing to spend big bucks. And that is so true today. Now, what's going to happen in this manifested, awesome, powerful work of God is that God is going to deliver her through the instrumentality of the Apostle Paul. The Bible says that him being greatly annoyed. You ever been agitated? Now, there's no question that Paul absolutely loved this girl. I don't think this is the issue. I think he loved the person, but I think he got annoyed. Right? Uh, this was happening all the time. And I think I've been agitated before, hadn't you? Yeah? We didn't have any of that in Guatemala, did we, Brittany? No, no one got agitated at all. We didn't. I don't. Brittany got sick. Right? But I don't know about any agitation. But the fact of the matter is, that's what's going on here. And the Bible says that these men are servants of the Most High God who announce to you the way of salvation. Was that true? It was absolutely true. You think Paul uh, was getting annoyed? Every time they went, day after day after day, here's this servant girl led by demonic forces coming up and saying, these are the servants of the Most High God and they are telling you the way of salvation. You think God needs this kind of promotion and advertisement? Right? He doesn't need our advertisement. And he doesn't need the enemy's advertisement. God doesn't need the occult leaders to plug, put a plug in for him. A pagan, polytheistic context robs the gospel of its true exclusivity. And it taints it with an unbiblical pluralism. 
The gospel doesn't have to be propped up, folks. It's the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. So, day after day after day, she's coming. Can you imagine them as they start on their way to church? Oh, man, here she comes again. She sees them coming, and man, they, they get ready for it. And Paul is already disturbed, and he's annoyed, and here she comes again. And the Bible says that Paul had had enough. And once he had enough, he cast the demon out of the girl in the power and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, folks, it's only Jesus that can deliver. And that's what happens here. And this is a big deal. Luke doesn't give us a whole lot of detail here of what happened right after it. But the demon cast out was an an amazing deliverance at that moment. Now, many scholars believe that the reason she is inserted between Lydia's salvation and the Philippian jailer is that we are supposed to understand it as meaning that she was delivered not only from the demon, but came to Christ. I think that's a safe assumption. Uh, Is there any way for us to know for sure? No. But I think the trilogy is given to us for a reason. To highlight the converting power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the deal with Lydia. Lydia was rich. She was a seller of purple. She was from Asia. And she was a wealthy woman. And God can save wealthy women. And now we have a servant girl who's a slave. Who's making money for her owners. And the Lord God of heaven can deliver her even when she has a demonic spirit in her. So the trilogy is working, of course, toward the Philippian jailer. And here's the deal. This act of kingdom power results in a brand new jail ministry. Right? How about that? When you end up doing and manifesting the very power of the kingdom, and all of a sudden you're going to end up in jail. Let's track with it. Verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said... These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Well, the ones that were making the profit are not happy. Are they? As F.F. Bruce says, when Paul exercised the demon from her, it also exercised the income from the owners. And that didn't make them happy whatsoever, right? Just think about that. Uh, I mean, I'm sure even in Guatemala, you see things like this taking place, that owners are making money off the backs of people And once they are delivered and come to Christ, possibly that's not the case anymore. So it it perturbs people. And they get all bent out of shape about losing their money. And when the money dries up, the, the Greek here is strong. They grab them. They seize them. They drag them into the agora, which is the marketplace before the authorities. Notice they only grab Paul and Silas. Why is that true? Because they're the two guys that are clearly Jews. Timothy was a hybrid. Half Jew, half Greek. Luke was a full-blown Gentile, and they go after the Jews. Hmm, anti-Semitism, correct? Clearly, that's the case. They grab them, uh, and they don't say these guys have ruined our livelihood by casting out a demon. They're a whole lot more strategic. Why? Because in AD 40, Claudius had kicked all Jews out of Rome and said they were troublemakers. 
So you know that news had to get to Philippi. And so in Philippi, what do they say? They say, well, they're just causing trouble in our city. Things that we don't believe in Philippi. Why? Because we're Roman citizens and we don't believe all the stuff from the Jews. They're disturbing our city just like they're disturbing Rome. And so Paul and Silas, of course, according to the Bible, were doing no such thing. They were simply wanting to have a Bible study and a prayer time. Right? That's exactly what they were trying to do. So down in verses 22 through 24, the crowd joins in. They, there's no investigation at this point. There's no trial. Uh, there's no way for Paul to give a defense because they're going to find out in a few moments that once they find out he's a Roman citizen, they're afraid about that. But Paul doesn't even have a, t- a chance to say anything. And then the Bible says they tore the robes off them and continually ordered them to be beaten with many blows, many inflictions. Under Roman law, guess what? A Roman citizen could not be humiliated. You could be beheaded, but you would never die by crucifixion. Uh, You could not be humiliated. And so for them, this was a trial of humiliation because they were Jews. And again, Romans were exempt from this kind of punishment. Yet Paul and Silas were beaten right there in the Agora as Jewish men before all the people. Not even with a chance to appeal. By the way, this is the first of how many beatings by rods that Paul will take. One, two, three. You will read Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 25, and you'll find out that this was one of the three beatings that he would take. Imagine having your back exposed and being beaten by a one-inch wooden dial. That's what it was about. One-inch wooden dial happened repeatedly. The Bible says they received many blows. If that's not enough, they put them in the custody of a Roman jailer. A crusty old calloused Roman jailer. Do you know that Philippi was a destination for retired Roman centurions and or soldiers? It was kind of like what people do when they go to Branson when they retire. They don't want to go to church and serve a living God. They go to Branson and retire. That's just, oh, I was just kidding, right? Just kidding. Unless it fits. If the shoe fits, wear it. But here's what they would do. They, they would leave Roman, Rome and they would come to Philippi as a retirement home. And so there's no question that this jailer was a retired Roman soldier. That's usually what the jailers were made up of. And so again, they pass them off to this jailer. Uh, you can only imagine the kind of people that ran these jails, hardened, callous man who had no sensitivity to pain whatsoever, to, to, to give out cruelty. And if that's not enough, they're placed in the intercell, inner cell, which was what we would call solitary confinement. And if that's not enough, they were placed in stocks. Don't get the picture like you see on TV of just somebody with their head under a brace and the arms out. No, it was a whole lot more excruciating than that. As a matter of fact, they they contorted your body in such a position that you were in absolute constant pain. Now think about that. They're in stocks. They're humiliated. They're in a constant position of cramping. What would your state of mind be, church family? Living in 2018, August 26th. What would be your state of mind if you found yourself in this kind of situation? You've been beaten, unjustly, imprisoned, placed in solitary confinement, and now you're in stocks. You can't eat, and you can't go to the bathroom. 
How would you feel? Listen to what Paul and Silas are doing. Tidbit of information about midnight. Isn't that awesome? About midnight. Are y'all looking at the Bible? Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. I wonder what they were singing. They're not groaning. They're not complaining. They're not writing their legislator to find out how they can avoid any kind of persecution as a Christian in the U.S. Amen? What are they doing? Man, they're having a good old-fashioned hymn sing and a prayer service to the great I Am. Lazaro Siri preached for us this past Sunday morning in Guatemala. Touched my heart to hear a Guatemalan preach on worship. Here's what he says. God causes us to worship even in our pain. Man, we can't even worship if we feel like we're not fulfilling our whatever role. We, we, can't, we fall apart with the most idiotic things in the face of this earth. I hope I'm not being unsympathetic to you. But when you go to a foreign country and you see people working in a dump to get their food. And they're coming to worship the king. And they're not worried about the time on their clock either. They told us before we went in, you can expect to be here two hours. And it was pretty near close, wasn't it, folks? They weren't worried about that. Why? Because they came to worship the king. And what a statement that in the midst of our pain, we need to worship the Lord. Not seek any wisdom from a world that's without Christ. Why don't we try running to our refuge? That's a strong tower. Run into the Lord. Run to the safe tower. And that's exactly what they're doing. They're worshiping the Lord. And they begin to evangelize with hymns and praying and singing. Can you just think about the content of the songs? I don't know, David, if it was Psalm 118 or was it through, through many dangers, toils, and trials. Maybe they knew Amazing Grace back then. Maybe they already wrote the thing. I don't know. But the fact is, they're singing. And it's saturated with gospel content. And they're praying. And it's saturated with the Scripture. The Old Testament. Right? As they're praying, the new had not even been written. And so here's the issue. They're, they're praising God. And this tidbit of information. At midnight. Folks. They're cramping. They've been beaten. And they're worshiping the Lord. At midnight. They're praising the Lord. God brings an earthquake. You think he got a little bit excited and he was tapping his foot up in glory? That's all it takes, by the way. Or just to speak in the word. And there's an earthquake. What a miraculous display of divine vindication. You have to see that, right? Who are they suffering for? They're suffering for Jesus Christ. It says in the word of God, they counted themselves worthy to suffer for the Lord. And what great vindication by the king of glory. They suffered for him and he turns around and delivers them. And so the jailer responds by doing what any dutiful officer will do. And what's that? Well, in their time frame, if you let a prisoner go, you had to serve their sentence. And in the case of Paul and Silas, it was going to be death. No question about it. And so the jailer does what any bona fide jailer would do. He picks up his sword, he gets ready to plunge it into his stomach or into his heart. 
And the Bible says that Paul cries out, Don't harm yourself, we're all here. Paul was confident that none of the prisoners had escaped. Now, I've had the opportunity on numerous occasions to preach in prisons. I've actually preached in a maximum FCI facility. And I was a little bit scared. There's no question about it. Especially when Butch's radio went off and it said, Keep your eye on the preacher. I thought, oh my goodness. But I can tell you this, no matter how good the sermon was that day, if those prison doors opened, they would not have stuck around. Amen? They wouldn't have been there. I guarantee you every one of them would have gone out. But that wasn't true. Well, it was the manifest power of God that kept every prisoner in that prison. They're all here. We're all here. He was confident. And, you know, they couldn't see because the Bible says they bring in a light. But Paul was confident that all the prisoners in this FCI were all there and accounted for. The jailer calls for light, realizes they're all there. He was that close to ending it all and entering into a lost eternity. And in a flash, he was overwhelmed. Wow, which brings us back to God opening Lydia's heart, right? Now, now listen, when we get to verse 30, am I reading this right? I'm, I'm getting my eyes focused, okay? And the jailer called for lights, rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs. Now, what is it that brought this man to ask this question? He's a pagan among pagans. As far as we know, before all the encounter took place, he had no verifiable, he may have had tidbits of information. But here it is, asking this question. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And they said to him, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You, and if your household believes, they will be saved as well. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them. And rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So, what an awesome understanding. Paul doesn't beat around the bush. What is it that brought him to that point? To where when the conviction hit his soul, it was that question. What must I do to be saved? Could it have been the slave girl that the enemy thought he was using for a negative thing? That the God of salvation had this Roman centurion here it every time Paul walked through the streets. These are servants of the Most High God telling us the way of salvation. Could that have been the case? There's a good possibility. What about Paul and Silas's demeanor and the way they received their lashings, being beaten by rods, and, and how they were treated, and yet they still acted in mercy and grace toward those who beat them? Could that have been the case? Stands to reason that we ought to act like the God we belong to. Maybe that was the case. Or what about the psalms and the hymns and the spiritual songs and the praying? Was that the information that God used to to open up his heart? I don't know, folks. There's no way of knowing that. But for you to have the conviction to say, what must I do to be saved? Had nothing to do with his physical life. Why? Because he knew he was safe because all the prisoners were in the prison. It was a spiritual understanding that God alone can give. And when he asked the question, Paul doesn't beat around the bush. No personal world helps. Not church attendance, not baptism. What was the question? What was the answer? Believe. 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Put your faith into the one whose character is the character of God. You put your faith and trust into, you believe into the Lord Jesus Christ. And what an awesome statement. Here is not only salvation offered to a Philippian jailer who asks, what must I do to be saved? But Paul adds into there, and your household, if they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So they spoke the word to all the family. Here comes Mr. Jailer leading some prisoners to Mrs. Jailer's home. And now they want to hear the gospel and take care of their wounds. And listen to this question. Sirs, what must I do to... Can you imagine a crusty old Roman jailer telling a Jew and calling them the most respected title given to man in Jewish world or Roman world, sir? I think God had changed the heart. What do you think? What a flip from beating to now caring for the wounds. He, just like Lydia, submitted himself to baptism, full identification with life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Through public profession, he associates with Jesus and his people. Now, in case you've been tracking, this does not give us any credence to baptize babies and pets and whatever else. Whatsoever. In the understanding of the language, it is this. If they believe, then they will be saved as well. Okay? No household salvation here by baptism. No infant baptism. That's not what this is teaching whatsoever. And so... What an awesome little revival that took place in a jailer's home that night. And you can rest assured that uh, this man was forever changed and his entire family. And the concluding verses, But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported those words to Paul saying, These magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, condemned us. Men who are Roman citizens have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, house church. And when they had seen the brothers... They encouraged them and departed. Some of you say, well, why in the world would Paul say, I'm not leaving? They stuck me in there. They're going to come apologize to me because I've done nothing wrong and I'm a Roman citizen. I think primarily it was for the cause of the gospel. That nothing would be tainted. That they absolutely did nothing wrong against the law, period. They were mistreated. And, of course, I can tell by the wording that they're saying, would you please leave our city? We're in Philippi, the city of brotherly love. Please leave our city. Well, they do. They move on. Okay, now, a couple of applications and we're done. The gospel of Jesus Christ comes to every kind of person. Aren't y'all thankful for that? It comes to every kind of person. Why does Luke highlight these three conversions? God saves a dignified businesswoman. He, he saves a teenage slave girl. And he saves a crusty old Roman soldier. You know why? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ knows no boundaries. God can save anybody, anywhere, anytime. The gospel is not a white man's gospel. It's not a rich man's gospel. It's an every man's gospel. It's not about race. It is about the grace of Jesus Christ. To save anybody, anywhere. It comes to those who are different ages, different socioeconomic classes, 
and different race. The gospel of the power. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Aren't you thankful that the gospel of Jesus Christ comes to every kind of person? Second, the gospel of Jesus Christ comes to us and saves in different ways. Not everyone is, co- is converted with the same set of circumstances and or the same response. Now, you can't be saved apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when you get saved and trust Him and you're justified and made alive, it doesn't always look the same. Lydia sat by the riverside and heard the word of... She was sitting beside the riverside and what happened? She heard the word of God. She listened and the Lord, kind of in a quiet way, according to the text, opened up her heart and she believed. Now, when you get to the slave girl, that's a different kind of way, right? That's pretty awesome and pretty dramatic that God delivered her from a demon and saved her soul. And you can't get any more dramatic than a Philippian jailer who came to Jesus in a dramatic way in an earthquake. Sometimes God saves through agitation. These are servants of the Most High God over and over and over. Sometimes God saves through an earthquake. Okay? Y'all getting this? There was an an exorcism and a deliverance. There was an earthquake and a deliverance. God saves in many kind of different ways. Well, here's the deal. If by chance you did not have a Philippian jailer type conversion, please don't look back on your conversion experience and say so-and-so's testimony of their salvation is so sudden and dramatic. I'm just not sure I'm saved. I want you to know something, folks. God saves in many different ways. He does. Sometimes you will not remember the exact moment when you passed from death to life. It's especially true with children who grow up in a Christian home when your mom and dad pour over you and pray and get the Word of God into you. And you know so. You've, brought up, you've been brought up into a Christian home. And when you look back, you don't see a dramatic change. But in God's great grace and mercy, just think about what God prevented you from going into all those days. Think about uh, the life you could have lived in absolute rebellion before God and sinfulness. But let me tell you something, folks. It doesn't matter if you had that clean-looking life or that terrible-looking life. It takes just as much grace to save every single one of us. Right? It does. And you say, well, I grew up in a Christian home. I don't remember this dramatic testimony. Well, I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. So my reminder is this. Are you believing the gospel of Jesus Christ today? That's what's important. Not a decision you made 30 years ago and you think you're fine. Are you presently today believing the gospel of Jesus Christ as the power of God into salvation? So this doesn't mean you're not saved because you can't remember a dramatic testimony. God just did it in a different way. Yet we ought to thank God for dramatic conversions. I mean, we look at the president and we look at uh, leaders in Congress and city officials and school officials and everybody else. We ought to pray that God will save them. And it's okay to say, God, do it in a dramatic way. Knock them off their horse. Send an earthquake. Give some godly agitation through even a demon-possessed girl. Whatever it takes. Get a hold of them. What's wrong with praying that? Do I need to start over? Right? But thank God also for quiet conversions like Lydia. The gospel transcends and saves in many kinds of ways. Nobody is beyond the reach of the power of God to save us. Now listen, our church is filled with different theological bases. Y'all know that, don't you? We have people that uh, don't believe like other people when it comes so- to soteriology. What's that mean? The doctrine of salvation. How much is involved with man? How much is involved with God? Here's the deal. You've got to understand something. God is 100% sovereign. 
But if your theology gets in the way with you saying you must believe, then you've got a problem. Did y'all hear me? Because the gospel has to be believed. Amen? And that's exactly what he said. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't let your theology get in the way of saying to everybody in this world, slave girl, prisoner, jailer, president, you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. Now, in conclusion, if Jesus is truly the only way, the unkindest thing we could ever do is keep it to ourselves. Y'all believe what I started off with? Now, I didn't think we'd ever come to this place, but I, I have to rehash and rethink my presentation about people joining our church. I never thought I would ever see the day when I would have to look at someone and say to them, do you believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? But I now know that I've got to do that. I do. And you're not going to join this church if you say no. Now, if you're grandfathered in, you better not let me know it. I'm just telling you like it is. If you don't believe Jesus is the only way to heaven, you don't need to be a member of this church. I'm just telling you. You can come all you want to, but you shouldn't be a member of a Bible-based congregation, a community of faith that belongs to Jesus Christ solely by what Jesus did. So if Jesus is truly the only way, the most loving thing we can ever do is share Him with others. Now let's suppose that you and I are standing 50 feet away from the edge of a cliff. And if you fall off, you're going to plunge 1,800 feet before you hit the jagged rocks on the canyon floor. There are no guardrails to keep you from falling. As you stand there chatting, you see an older man walking slowly toward the edge. And as he nears the edge, you realize that he's blind and his life is in danger. And suddenly he calls out, which way do I go? What would you think if I yelled out, doesn't matter which way you go. Figure out your own course. Would I not be criminally negligent when, it, when he falls to his death? If I care about him at all, I'm going to cry out to him, don't take another step and I'm coming to get you. And I'm going to take you by your hand and I'm going to lead you away from destruction. Folks, I want to tell you something. God's heart is so wide, but the way of salvation is so narrow. There is no salvation apart from God's Son. There is no salvation. There is no removal of destruction apart from Jesus. Jesus is the way. You know, here are five words that if you'll stick to them, will take you all the way to heaven. And if you understand these five words and know what they mean, you'll spend eternity in heaven. And these five words contain enough truth to save the whole world. Only Jesus and Jesus only. We ought to say that today, should we not? Well, let's do it. Let's say it together. Only Jesus and Jesus only. If you want to find your way to the Father's house, you have to travel the course that Jesus Christ laid out for you. Other ways may look shiny and attractive. They may seem like shortcuts, but it's not going to take you to glory. Only Jesus Christ can do that. May God help us put our trust in Jesus alone. Great God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth in your word. And Father, I'm asking you, Lord God, you're sovereign, but Lord, would you have someone believe today and trust you? God, there isn't, we're, we're all, we were all headed to that disastrous fall with destruction awaiting us, but you interpose your precious blood, died in our stead and on our behalf. Lord, we should, some, we should think about the fearful expectations of falling into the hands of an angry God, but we also should think about the magnificent solution to our problem. We must turn to Jesus, and Jesus only, in order to be saved. And for Christians, Lord God, protect our church. 
protect our church from the enemy, from the subtleties of the enemy, just to get into our thinking and for us to begin to worship the creature more than the creator. Lord, for us to begin to think that, oh, things are okay. It's all right. No, it's not all right. Doctrine's important. What we believe is important. And the challenging factor in our world today is simply that major one. Franklin Graham nailed it on the head years ago. The biggest thing we're going to struggle with from now on as a church of the living God is how many ways are there to heaven? And we're going to stand firm on the Bible no matter what anybody says. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man will come to the Father except through him. Now, Lord God, would you be pleased to save someone today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.